Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Matthew 8, 18 through 27. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another man, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and see, obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. How you doing? Good, good. Yeah, three people are good. Everybody else is having a rough day. Uh, so like Ben said, my name is Michael Badger, and uh, not just my wife and I came up to plant a church in St. Albans, but we were blessed enough to, uh, to have two other families join us as well, uh, the Wilsons and the Hunleys, who are actually here right there, if you want to say hi to them. Uh, so uh, we have been so incredibly blessed to be a part of this church, even just in the few months that we've been here. We've been able to meet so many of you, we've been able to sit under some incredible teaching, but I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you, when Aaron asked me to, uh, to preach today, I was, I was kind of equal parts uh, excited and, and nervous, and well, it's not equal parts. I was probably a little bit more nervous than I was excited. Uh, but one of the reasons I was nervous is because I don't have the best track record at preaching places for the first time. Uh, so, so just to lay that out for you, the first time that I preached anywhere, uh, and the first time I preached, well, yeah, anywhere, was in a small church in East Tennessee. And uh, I was so nervous that my mouth just completely dried out. It was just like cotton mouth in there. Uh, and I was, I was also so nervous that my brain completely forgot how to speak and breathe at the same time. And so throughout the entire sermon, like everybody was giving me these like concerned looks because it, looked, or it sounded like I was going to hyperventilate and just pass out on the stage. So, so if that does happen, I've got notes here. It's in manuscript form. So Ben, if you don't mind coming up and just finishing it for me. Uh, the next time I preached uh, for the first time somewhere was in Ireland. Uh, and, and I wasn't as nervous, but I did uh, accidentally lock myself into the bathroom, and they had to uh, come and take off the door handle to let me out, which, which wouldn't have been as bad if it was in some like back hallway or anything like that, but the bathroom was actually attached to like the sanctuary, so it would be like if the door was right there. And so I had to do this walk of shame up to the pulpit, uh, and it was not good with everybody watching. Uh, but then I proceeded to, uh, to preach a 30-minute sermon with my fly down also, so, and uh, yeah, yeah, but you know what? Praise God, because 
I don't think I fully realized and understood what humility was until I preached the Word of God with my zipper completely down. So, all of that to say, uh, none of that has happened so far, so this sermon already is a home run in my book, so we're good to go. Uh, so, another not quite as embarrassing thing to know about me is, is one of my pastimes is, is reading, as boring as that sounds. Uh, but I, I love reading anything from theology to history to science fiction. And, and another thing I really enjoy reading about is, is philosophy. And, and before you sound or seem too impressed by that, I usually have no idea what they're saying, but it makes me feel smarter, you know, opening up a book about philosophy anyway. But as you read these ancient philosophers, especially the Greek philosophers, you, you kind of see this... this uh, uh, this pattern start emerging in their lives, and, and not necessarily their specific philosophical ideologies or anything like that, but you start kind of seeing that there begins to be these followers that surround these Greek philosophers, these, these disciples that begin to follow them and sit underneath their teaching. Now, disciples during this time and also during the time of Jesus were, were a very dedicated group of people. The Greek word used in the Bible and in other ancient Greek writings for the word disciple or even the word follower was the Greek word mathetes, mathetes, which means someone who learns from another. And when we look at this word disciple in the Bible, I think it can sometimes be easy for us to, to kind of miss the weight of it. It means, simply, it means more than simply following someone as we would follow somebody today on Facebook or Instagram, you know, somebody whose like, recipes we like or the workout routine that we like. And it means more than just a half-hearted effort at trying to adhere to, to some basic teaching and catchy, or to some catchy phrases of some school of philosophy. But instead, Mathedes connotes a, a wholehearted dedication to your teacher and their teachings. And what's more, the disciples of the ancient Greek philosophers, they would often sell everything that they had. They would leave their hometown, they would leave their friends and family simply to, seat, uh, to sit at the feet of their favorite philosopher. And it's important to note, and this is, this is really the crux of the matter, it's important to note that it was the teacher and the teacher alone who had the authority to set the standard for the disciples to follow. Only the teacher had the right to say what it meant to be a follower. So this sermon series we're in right now is, is all about the authority of Jesus. And as Aaron wonderfully explained last week, those who heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, this, this world-shattering sermon, said of him that he taught as one with authority. Meaning that Jesus did not rely on other teachers. He didn't rely on the scribes or the Pharisees to prop up his teaching. His teaching alone stood as authoritative. And we learned last week that Jesus' authority extended even beyond his teaching. In the beginning passages of Matthew 8, Aaron taught us again that Jesus has authority over disease, over illness. He has authority over what makes us unclean before God. And he showed us this authority by healing the sick and the paralyzed. He healed and made ceremoniously clean a man with leprosy. And he even cast out demons. So another way that you could say this is that Jesus has complete authority even over the effects of sin. You see, the sinfulness of the enemy and the sinfulness of man is what brought brokenness and suffering into this world. The reason disease and calamity and heartbreak our realities is because out of rebellion, man turned away from God. 
sin is the root of it all. But Jesus, out of a complete mercy that we did not deserve, humbled himself by taking on flesh, by becoming truly man and truly God. To live a holy and perfect life in obedience to the Father. And he dealt with the root of suffering and the root of disease and the root of uncleanliness before him. And he did this by taking our sins upon himself at the cross. And as one commentator said, in tasting death, which is the ultimate consequence of sin, he defeated it forever. That is our Lord. That is the one who we want to dedicate our hearts to. That's who we want to be a disciple of. And he is the one we seek. But as Aaron touched on last week, the authority of Jesus even extends beyond the effects of sin. As we will see in our passage for today, just like the ancient Greek philosophers had the authority to set the standard for their disciples, Jesus has ultimate authority over his disciples. And that's what we want to explore today. Please pray with me. Lord God, we just thank you so much for this wonderful gospel that you've given us, God. God, we praise you that it's not just words on a page, but it is reality. Lord, that you truly stepped in to history. God, that you stepped down into this world to defeat the root of death, to defeat the root of suffering, to take our sins upon yourself at the cross, taking the punishment that we rightly deserved. And God, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you just open our minds and our hearts, Lord, to the, to the hard truths that you have to teach us today, God. And Lord, I pray that you just remove me from the equation and just speak to the minds and the hearts who are listening today, God, and speak to my mind and to my heart about this as well, Lord. And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So as we enter into this, this new passage in Matthew 8, we, we begin to see that there is a swirl of excitement that's being swept up around Jesus. Verse 18 says that Jesus saw that there was a crowd around him, and this crowd was full of people who had, who had either heard the Sermon on the Mount or, or even possibly seen all these miraculous healings that Jesus had done. And the people in the crowd, they were around him, and they were, they were waiting with bated breath just to see what he would do next. And to be completely honest, if, if I was there, I would be excited too. I'd be in that crowd just as everybody else was, having heard what this man taught and having seen what he'd done. I, I would want to see what was going to happen after that. And it is in this excitement and it is in this fervor that Jesus and his disciples begin to make their way back across the Sea of Galilee. But before they could make it to the boat, Matthew tells us of this account of two men who, who stepped out of the crowd to approach Jesus about being his follower. Now, the response that Jesus has to these two men is, is maybe not something quite what we would expect, but it does express Jesus' authority over and lays the standard for his disciples in two unique ways. So first, I, I wanted us to take a look at this first man that approached Jesus. And this first man to approach him was none other than a scribe. Now, the scribes, like the Pharisees, they were, they were part of the religious elite. 
Scribes were heavily involved in transcribing the law of Moses, and they were trained in the law of Moses, and they would, they would know the Old Testament's writings backwards and forwards. And most scribes and Pharisees, it's important to remember, were adamantly opposed to Jesus. They set out time and time again to trap him in his words, to make a fool out of him, and they ultimately plotted and killed him. But not this scribe. This scribe seems to have also been, been swept up in the excitement of the crowd, and maybe he saw the miracles or heard the sermon because he seemed to even uh, respect him as a teacher. And he was so excited and so eager that he approached Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now that seems like the exact response that Jesus would have desired an impassioned declaration of someone who wants to follow him. And I think this can be similar to us as well. You see, we're accustomed to coming into church or turning on our Christian Spotify playlist and singing song lyrics like, Lord, lead me where my faith is without borders. Or where you lead me, I will follow. Which also sounds like the Gilmore Girls theme song, like Caleb told me. (laughs) Or one of my favorites is, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Yeah, you all know it. Good job. We'll have a sing-along today. But we sing those songs with passion, and we sing them with sincerity. We mean them when we sing them. But you see, I believe that Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, purposely placed this true account directly in between these stories of healings. And I believe he did this because when we, when we read of these miracles of God, even when we see miracles in the lives of other people, or, or even when we simply hear the goodness of Jesus, it's easy for us to get excited, and it's easy for us to get swept up in the emotion of the moment, and we turn on those songs and we sing them with a loud voice, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. But in this excitement and in this eagerness, we run the risk of coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. And we don't fully understand the weight of the words we're singing. We don't fully grasp the cost of following him. You see, we can be tempted to come to Jesus, not for Jesus, but for stuff. And we live in a culture that tries hard to sell us a message about Jesus that has been twisted and manipulated. A message that says that you are capable of following Jesus on your own terms with no need to give up anything or change the way you live your life. And this is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. A grace that does not require obedience and that costs you nothing. And this cheap grace says that you don't come to Jesus to serve but to be served. That you come to Jesus to gain health and wealth in this lifetime. You, you come to Jesus to do well financially. You come to Jesus to maybe get a little help in getting that promotion or that job. Or you come to Jesus to fill in the blank. And this cheap grace blinds us to the true meaning of discipleship. And we, like this scribe, can forget to count the cost of following Jesus. You see, what Jesus is making clear to this over-eager scribe is that you you don't come to Jesus to get stuff. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. He says, if you follow me, I I am it. I am all you have, but I am enough. 
Jesus tells this scribe, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, Jesus was virtually homeless during his ministry. He, he relied mostly on the, the kindness of other people, and he had little to no possessions of his own. The role of scribe, in contrast, was, was a life of ambition with many different rungs to climb. He could be a humble transcriber of the law. He could rise to be a doctor of the law, or he could even ascend to the heights of being a head of a school or even member of the Sanhedrin, the highest council in charge of all Jewish affairs in Roman Palestine. And I think it's important to have that context when we see Jesus explain to this scribe what he must be willing to give up to be his follower, to be his disciple. And if you're a Christian in this room, or even if you're not a Christian and you're wanting to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you, I, must remember one thing. The gift of salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, and it is not something that you can earn and it is not something that you can buy. It is a gift from God. But there is a cost we must count to be his disciple. Just as Jesus told this scribe, you may lose everything, even the roof over your head, even your earthly security and dreams, if you follow after him. The call of discipleship to, to be a follower of Jesus is not a call into an easy life. It's so much richer and more beautiful than that. To follow after Jesus, to be a true disciple means holding everything you own, everything that you have, even your own life with open hands outstretched to him. It means if, if everything is taken away from us, we will still be satisfied because in him is everything we could ever want. Not all of this stuff that we convince ourselves that we need and that we cling so tightly onto. Everything else is vapor. It's nothing compared to the glory of our Savior King who grants eternal life, and who grants forgiveness and adoption as his sons and daughters for all who believe. And the King's people must understand and embrace, as Hebrews 11 says, that we, are, that we are sojourners, we are strangers in this world. We, our citizenship is, is someplace else. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. And when we look at these earthly possessions and the things we own and the things we collect, even the roof over our head, we must realize that they are transient. They are non-lasting. But we have been given that which does last, that persists through eternity. We've been given Jesus. And we will one day reign with him, as 2 Timothy 2.12 tells us. So when the Lord says that we may not have a roof over our head or a pillow to lie our heads down on at night, let us say, Lord, take it all and give me you because you are worth it. You are enough. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That, my friends, is the heart's attitude of a follower of Jesus. A true disciple follows the command of Jesus to be willing to give up everything he has in this world with a joyous heart. 
Because in losing everything, we gain so much more. The Apostle Paul, at one point during his ministry, had a, uh, had a uh, uh, co-laborer by the name of Demas. And I think we can praise God for a second that our names aren't Demas. And if it is, it's a beautiful name. <laughs> but Demas also labored for the gospel alongside Mark and Luke. But Demas really wanted to be a part of what God was doing with Paul. And so he, he basically told Paul that I will follow you wherever you go. But in 2 Timothy 2, or sorry, 2 Timothy 4, Paul tells us that Demas abandoned him while Paul was in prison, right when he needed him the most. Why? Because Paul said that he was in love with the world. In his eagerness, Demas, too, neglected to count the cost of discipleship. And when the time came, the cost was, was too high for Demas. Now, there's a quote from A.W. Tozer that I'm, that I'm tweaking a little bit. But it says, Let us not be a generation of Christians who believe we can follow after Jesus without knowing the cost and forsaking this world and what it says we should value. This is the first standard that Jesus gives his disciples. Now I want us to take a look at the second. If the scribe was too eager in asking to follow after Jesus without counting the cost, I think this next man, it could be say, is, is maybe a little too hesitant. Verse 21 through 22 says, Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Now this man is asking Jesus for permission to, to put off following him so that he can go and bury his dad, which, which on the surface doesn't seem like a very crazy request. It sounds, it sounds pretty reasonable. In fact, it was an obligation for Jews to honor their parents by, by arranging their funerals. They saw it as an extension of honoring your father and mother in Exodus 20. And I mean, this, this man isn't, you know, asking to, for permission to go and sow his wild oats to get all of his favorite sins out of the way before he goes and follows Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He, wants, he just wants to go and bury his dad. But I think there may be more going on here than first appears. You see, the Jewish custom of the day was to immediately bury their dead. So if somebody died, the very next day, they would have the funeral. So what some scholars believe, and what some believe is the most likely explanation, is that this man's father was, was probably still alive, just either ill or of or very old age, meaning that he had been, this man had been following Jesus for a time, but he wanted to go home to be with his ill or aging father, and then to eventually bury him before he was ready to fully commit to following after Jesus. But either way, whether this man was, was already dead or whether he wasn't, what Jesus was telling him and what he is saying is his second standard for discipleship is this. He demands our ultimate affections. He demands our ultimate affections. In a similar passage found in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and child, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, don't be confused. Jesus is not actually commanding us to, to hate our families, to hate our parents. This would be a, a clear call to us to violate God's commandment, such as honor your father and mother, again, found in Exodus 20. 
or for husbands to love your wives in Ephesians 5. But what Jesus is saying is that he demands ultimate priority in our lives. The call of discipleship is to be loyal to Jesus above all, even our own families. Following Jesus must come first in our relationship with our parents. It must come first in our marriages, in our friendships. And Jesus must never take second place. And we simply can't put off following him until the time suits us, even for the sake of our most sacred family obligations. Jesus said, whoever puts his hands to the plow and looks back is unfit for the kingdom of God. That's the message Jesus is giving the man who wanted to put off following him to bury his father. In addition, Jesus clearly warns us in John 15 that the world will hate us because of his name. And this means that when we preach the gospel, that we are sinners in need of a savior, that we must repent of our sin and turn away from our old selves to follow after Christ, that there may be those in our lives who hate us for that message. Possibly even our friends, possibly even our families. But despite that, Our allegiance must be grounded first and foremost in our relationship with Jesus. That no other relationship even compares to the love and attention that we give our relationship to our Savior. Now, I want to say that there are some who may push back on that message, and they may even try to convince us that only an egomaniac or a a narcissistic God would want you to abandon everything for him and to make him your ultimate priority, even above your family and your friends. But the reality is the call for total, complete worship and dedication to Jesus and Jesus alone is one of the deepest expressions of love he shows to us. Let me say that again. Jesus' call to complete worship and dedication to him and him alone is one of his deepest expressions of love to us. That may sound odd, but it's because for us to cast our eyes on anything else, for our hearts to even be momentarily occupied by something or someone other than our Lord Jesus is to miss the only source of true and lasting satisfaction. Scripture makes it clear that there is no one or no thing in this world truly good other than Him. And for Jesus not to demand our utter allegiance and devotion would be to invite his children to play with poisonous snakes, to lead us into idolatry that will ultimately rob us of joy, peace, and true life. You see, Jesus desires ultimate good for us, which is only found in himself. He is the satisfaction of our souls. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus wants us to experience full and complete happiness and joy, peace and comfort. And for him to be content with us, seeking those things elsewhere, would not be loving. It'd be tragic. Now, to be completely honest with you guys, I... uh, I had a hard time writing this sermon, and I, I had a really hard time because it's, it's hard. Jesus is saying a lot of hard things, and I was tempted time and time again to, to kind of pat it, you know, to, to soften the message of it, 
to make following Jesus seem maybe just a little bit less radical, a little more easy to digest. But as we examine what Jesus himself said are the costs of discipleship, we see that it is exactly radical obedience he requires. It's important to see here that Jesus is not begging people to follow him. He's not begging to people for people to come and be his disciples. In fact, you could actually argue that he was trying to drive away the uncommitted. As David Platt put it, he was telling these men who sought to be Jesus' disciple that you don't know what you're asking. You're wanting to follow the one who speaks in leprosy, obeys, who speaks in disease, obeys, who speaks in fever, obeys. And when he tells us that he demands ultimate allegiance and priority in our lives, you and I obey. Be aware, Christian, that someday God may call you to leave your home, your friends, and even your family to follow his call. He may call you to another city. He may call you to another state. He may call you to another country. He may ask you to give up things you love and enjoy, to be willing to preach the gospel to people you know hate its message and risk losing relationships. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what happens to these two men. He left the story open-ended, and this is kind of just me using my imagination, but but I believe he left it open-ended for a purpose, so that we could finish the story, and to make us ask the question, what, what will you do? When you hear the Lord beckon, and you realize the cost, will you follow? How will your story end? As I attempt to land this plane, I I, I want to answer the question, why? And I know I've kind of touched on that a little bit already, but but why is Jesus worth giving everything to follow after? And And I hope to cement the answer to that question in this next passage. You see, after these two men approach Jesus and and he and the disciples begin to actually make their way across the Sea of Galilee in this uh, probably this fishing boat, a a terrible storm just kind of came out of nowhere. And it was such a terrible storm that the waves caused by the fierce wind began to actually come over the side and began to, to threaten to sink it and to drown them all. And now remember, at least four on this boat were experienced fishermen, Andrew, Simon, Peter, James, and John. That sounds like five, but Simon Peter's one name, so just letting, <laughs> just letting you know. I can't count. Uh, where was I? They may have even been used to, there we are, uh, to navigating back to safety in these big storms. But this storm was violent enough to terrify even the most experienced among them. So let's read again what happened. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? So before we we really dive in to this passage, I want to talk about one glaring danger in interpreting 
this story. You see, many will, will come to this account and assume the meaning to be, Jesus will rescue me from every storm in my life. But I want to make it clear that that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is found in verse 27. After Jesus rebuked the storm and the waters calmed, it says, And they marveled, wondering what kind of man is this that the wind and the seas obey. In Mark's account of the story, it says that they were filled with fear, that they were more afraid of the one who calmed the storm than they were of the one who, uh, than they were afraid of the storm itself. Why? Well, it's because they were good Jewish men. And as good Jewish men, they would be well acquainted with the Old Testament writings, such as Psalm 89 or Psalm 29 or even the opening chapters of Genesis. And they would know that the authority to control nature itself, to control all of creation, was only in the domain of God. And they marveled and they were afraid because they realized that they didn't have a category to place Jesus in. That there was no other kind of being like Jesus. And for the first time, they realized that God, that Yahweh, was in the boat with them. That's the point of this account. The point is, is that Jesus is God. And when we realize that point, it makes his question to the disciples make it just a little bit more sense. Why fear, oh, you of little faith? Do you not know who is in the boat with you? Do you not know that even in the middle of the darkest storm, I am still God and still in control? You see, the promise in this passage is not that God will rescue you from every storm in life. You will still experience pain and suffering. You will still struggle with depression, addiction, and loss. You will even have times like myself where you realize that you have failed to live up to the standard Jesus has set for discipleship. And you will even feel like you are struggling in your faith. But even in the middle of your darkest hour where it seems like hope is just out of reach and the storm clouds are overhead, you are not alone. Our good Father, the God of the universe, is in the boat with you, and He is working all things for the good of those who love Him. C.J. Mahaney said this. He said, The personal desolation Christ experienced on the cross is what you and I should have experienced. But instead, Jesus bore it, and He bore it all alone. Why alone? He was alone so that we might never be alone. A pastor by the name of D.L. Moody, who rose to fame in the 1800s, and he was kind of famous for his evangelistic works and establishing the Moody Bible Institute, he faced his own dark clouds as his life neared its end. See, in his early 60s, Moody became ill, and with, with that day in view, with his death in view, he wrote, he wrote these words. Someday you will read in the paper that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal. 
a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. You see, Moody knew he wasn't alone, even on his deathbed. And he knew of the glory that awaited him. And that's our great hope as well. And that is why when we count the cost, when we, when we look at all of the comforts in this world, we can consider them as rubbish and follow after Jesus with abandon. Because Jesus is God and has authority over all and, his promise, and he promises us eternal life, a new body that will be incorruptible and an eternity spent in his presence where death, pain, and suffering will be no more. Brothers and sisters, He is worthy of our praise and affection, and He is worthy of the cost. And if you believe God is calling you to discipleship, to put your faith in what Jesus has done in the cross, I, I urge you to count the cost, but know that He is worthy of it all. Please pray with me. Lord, you are a good, good Father, Lord. Your blessings are so immense and immeasurable, God, and we know that we don't deserve any of them. But God, I pray that, that as we look at what true discipleship is, Lord, I pray that you prompt us to count the cost, Lord, to be willing to give up everything in order to follow you, God, because when we give up everything, we gain so much more. We gain you, Lord. We gain an eternity spent in your presence where, where every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. So God, even, Lord, when we fail to live up to your standard of discipleship, Lord, I pray that you just, God, send your spirit into our hearts to, to encourage us, Lord, and to help us as we seek to follow after you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.